Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through our series, Divided, Seeking Unity in a Fractured World, we are coming face to face with the division that seems to define the culture of our nation, our communities, and even our churches. Join us as we turn to 1 Corinthians to discover the unifying power of a people who follow Christ. I come back and uh, the first, I find out we're, uh, the first sermon, the first series that I'm in is a series, I'm closing us out on a series on division. That's fun. Um, <laughs> right, uh, right away, we're looking forward to doing that. Uh, but yes, I'm excited and, and eager to open God's word with you this morning. And then just to ask the question as we're, we're kind of concluding this series, why are we so divided? What is it about our lives that just has us, has us at each other's throats? Or even separating from one another in such a degree to cancel each other out. To never say anything to one another again. To, to hate even one another. You, you have to have been on the planet Mars, I think. Or maybe a little bit farther out in the solar system for the last two years. Not to recognize that there has been a deeply polarizing movement going on in culture. I mean, nobody is going closer to one another. Nobody is moving towards the center of whatever the issue is on anything anymore. If in anything, it's been we've been just moving to the extremities all the more on both sides, left and right. And I'm just talking about politically in everything. It's just all out there. We're just, just divided in so many ways. And it's true, the division is also felt in the church. Every pastor I know, and every, I was around a handful of pastors while I was on sabbatical, it was so refreshing, but every one of them that I talked to, and I, I would include myself in this, in this uh, category as well, everybody I know would say the last two years has been the most divisive time in the American church that we've experienced in our generation. It's just been the most divisive, polarizing, separating terms of ministry ever for us. And I'm so excited, it's so encouraging to me that we've got another election year right ahead of us, right? Like, I can't wait for November. It's so fantastic, even if it's only midterms, right? It's not just politics, it's everything. But, but should that be the case? Should it be the case that, that Jesus' people, the church, are, are divided? Didn't Jesus pray and ask the Father, Lord, just as you and I are one, Father, just as you and I are one, so may they be one, that the world may know that, that you and I are in them, that they are my disciples by their love for one another and their unity. What, what is keeping us and making us so divided? Well, Paul has been addressing this in, to the church at Corinth, this, this elite cosmopolitan, metropolitan church that, that he's been speaking to. And in this church, there's been some significant divisions. You've heard about it the last four weeks. I hope you've been here. Paul has been addressing them and their divides. Some of it just falls along the lines of celebrity. They're looking at like, hey, some people are like, hey, Peter's my guy. He's my pastor. I'm following him. He's the smartest. And others are like, no, 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 I got Paul. Paul is legit. Like, I am following him. And then there's the spiritual ones in the church like, oh, you petty idiots. I follow Jesus. What's wrong with you? And they just, like, there's just fractions. It's fractions over gifting, fractions over spiritual maturity, fractions over how to live, whether to eat meat or not. I mean, dietary divisions. It's all over the place in this letter. And Paul just getting down to it is saying, hey, here's these divisions, and they got to stop. This isn't the case for the people of God. 
The same reason that the church is so divided today. We're not that different than the Corinthian church. It's the very same sin that keeps us from experiencing the oneness that Jesus desired and prayed for and calls us to. And do you want to know what that reason is? Maybe you already know it. Maybe somebody uh, who preached earlier told you what that is. But I'll just tell you again. The reason is pride. At the root of all of our divisions, at the root of every separation within the church, the sin issue is our pride, our elevating ourselves above one another, our, our, our love for the affirmation and the boasting in us, and the dismissal and the, the trotting underfoot of one another. We love to boast and inflate and elevate me. And so as I close this series today, I want to ask you to consider with me for just a moment that there is a real antidote. There is a real remedy to our pride and to the division that we feel and face in our communities and even in the church today. Imagine with me, I want to give us hope, I want to, I want to lay out a vision of, of reality and a vision of how we can move forward in growth if we could find some ways of thinking and living that would help foster humility among us and bring us closer together in true unity, what would those be? I believe that there is, and I believe the scripture is adamantly confident about it. Paul, speaking from the Holy Spirit through him, says, let me, let me show you, let me help you think about what this really looks like. I wanna help us have two ways to foster humility and experience unity together. If we will consider these things in our lives, if we, will, if we will step back and take stock of our hearts and our lives adequately, rightly, really, as Scripture lays open for us, I think we'll find there's no room for pride. And in fact, if anything, it will generate and foster more and deeper humility within us again and again and again. So I'm going to ask us to, this morning to consider two things. To consider two things. First of all, I want us to consider whom God saves. This is the first way that we can foster humility. It's to consider who does God save? Who, who, does, he, who does he rescue from their sin? I mean, just take, a, just take a moment and look at yourself. I love you guys. You're, you're, you're deeply near to my heart, but, but let's be honest, we're not all that impressive, right? We're not all that great. Uh, Paul here turns the argument that he makes here in verses 26 31, he turns the argument on, on what he's been making the whole entire chapter. Go with me to verse 10 of chapter 1. He says, I appeal to you. That's a, that's a way of saying, I beg with you. I plead with you. I am going to wrestle with you to this end, brothers and sisters, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he, he invokes the highest authority. He's like, I'm pleading with you for God's sake, in the name of Jesus, that all of you agree that there not be divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He's like, I am pleading with you, church. Get on the same page. Have the same heart. Be united. Have the same vision. Don't divide among yourselves. From that, though, he, he says, let there be no divisions. He, he wants them to see where they stand. So, so again, look at yourself. We're considering here for just a moment. His argument is based on this. Why should I not divide? Why should I not raise myself up above you? Why should you not raise yourself up above one another? Paul says, Scripture says, consider. Think about yourself here. He says this in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. 
Now, when he says calling there, he's not speaking about your vocation or, or the career that you have. He's not speaking of that in that terms. The, the, the term here, calling, and the way that it's employed here in the New Testament is the idea of, of invitation. It, it's a call into salvation. Calling is your calling by God, for God, to salvation. It's the appeal from God to turn from your sin and to receive his grace as a gift found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God called you out of darkness, into his marvelous light. So what he's asking you to consider when he says consider your calling is consider who you were and where you stood as you became a follower of Jesus. I mean, what kind of, what kind of platform did you have? What kind of prominence did you have? How big of a deal in the world, world were you really? You may be a little discouraged by what he says next. And he's speaking in general terms here to the church as a whole, but he says, consider your calling, brothers and sisters, not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. I mean, like, I look around the room here. I know most of you pretty well. I, I, don't think, I don't think Lifetime TV is saying, hey, we need to have your insights on the world and how it works, and so why don't you come online and, and, and share those with us on the show? I, I, and I may have missed something big here over the last several weeks, but I, as far as I know, Oprah didn't show up and, and become part of our congregation. Jordan Peterson didn't say, hey, I'm going to drop wisdom bombs among you and, and like share with you a whole lot. Like, there's not a bunch of us here that are really, really wise. In fact, there's not really any of us, according to worldly standards. Nobody's leaning in to us or for us for that stuff. Not many of you are wise. There's not many of you are powerful. And, and again, I look across the room and I... From what I remember and know, like, I don't think anybody here has really a lot of pull in, uh, in City Hall. Maybe you do, like, inform me of that. I have some ideas. Um, but, like, not, not too many of us have that kind of sway or swagger in, in government. Nobody here that I know of is, is up in Lansing, like, making it happen and directing things and whispering in the ear of the governor and saying, we got to do this or that. And, and even on a larger scale, like, yeah, nobody here in D.C. I mean, it's just not... We're not powerful. Not, nobody really cares about our opinion or our thoughts. It's just not moving the needle at all. And he says, not many of you were of noble birth. I mean, a few of us try and be influencers on social media, and we got our TikToks rolling and Instagram, and like, hey, I hope people notice me, but like, like five followers maybe? Not really. The Kardashians didn't show up as much as I know, and they're not among our congregation, so like... Not many, not many noble, nobody of notoriety. That's where most of us rank, according to the world. We're just, not, we're just not prominent big people. And yet, the God of the universe, who created everything, if, you, if you've received Jesus by faith, he noticed you. He rescued you. He, he sent his son to save and deliver you. Not because he noticed you were trending on Twitter. His grace. Instead, Paul says in verse 27 and 28, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. I mean, he's not picking the most brilliant or the, the New York Times bestsellers. He's, he's picking the foolish in the world. God chose what is weak in the world we're just ordinary people, commoners. It's on the bottom rungs. He chose what is weak in the world 
in order to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, even the people that like, we don't even think about or we don't even believe they exist because we just don't want to. He's saving them in order to bring to nothing the big folks. So what the world considers foolish, those are the ones God has chosen to put to shame the wise. Those that the world considers weak and throwaway, God chooses them to put to shame the powerful, the despised, the forgotten, the overlooked, the pitiable, the deplorable, the losers, the rejects. That's who God is saving. Sorry if you feel those identities kind of hitting you, like, oh, that, that's me. Like, yeah, really, as we look at each other and as we look at ourselves, why? Here's the purpose of this. He does all this in order to nullify or to bring to nothing, to, to nullify the big shots, so that, verse 29, no human being may boast in the presence of God. Nobody will be able to stand up before God and say, you saw, you saw my wealth, and like you were a little jealous, God, and so you saved me, just so you could have that in your, in your household. You notice how influential I was. I mean, I make moves. People listen when I speak. And so, like, you had to have me on your team. God, you brought me into the family because I was trending. And, like, you know, you, you needed a little bit of a PR lift, right? None of that. Not one soul will be able to boast before God on the day of Christ that they were wise enough or powerful enough or noble enough or rich enough or enough at all for God to feel obligated to save them. There's not one influencer that can improve upon or pretty up God's reputation. Here's the reality. Who does God save? Whom does he save? God saves sinners. Christ said, I, I came to save the least. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He comes to the humble, the lowest, the worst, the rags and the refuse of society. He comes to the people that are overlooked and forgotten and just humble. Scripture says the Lord, he says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble in heart and trembles at my word. The Lord looks and he saves the ordinary, everyday, forgotten, overlooked of the world. That's speaking in general terms, but, but as we look at that, how... I just think about how that should foster humility among us. When we start seeing ourselves for who we are in God's way, and we see God's grace, that God is the one who saved us, and, and we see the way that God talks about us here, pride really can't get in the way. I just say this, it's okay to be a nobody. It's, it's okay not to be important or prominent in society. Your, your really low social standing does not put you at an advantage, a disadvantage with the, the God of the universe. I'm a nobody. God has rescued me. One of my professors at uh, Bible college, we, in our preaching classes, we would ask him uh, just from time to time, like, okay, how, how often should we share personal examples or personal stories in our sermons? And he was a dry fella, and he would just look at us with this blank stare on his face, and he goes, not much. You're not that interesting. Just humbled and leveled us all. And that's, I mean, that's, let's just be honest, that's true of us, right? We're really, in the big grand scheme of things, not that interesting. But God is interested. He loves you. 
He sent his son for you, for me. And when we see it in that perspective, like, whoa. That changes my relationship with him, but it also changes our relationship with one another. This, this kind of humbling of lowering ourselves, it, it levels us as we relate to each other. There's no room for you to look down at somebody else and say, well, I'm really somebody and you're not anybody. I mean, there's, there's no room for us as we come to the cross to see ourselves elevated and everybody else denigrated and down in the dirt. I, I want to just encourage you to take that mindset with you as you walk into a life group this fall. There shouldn't be elitism among us. There shouldn't be you know, status order or pecking order just to like, who, who's the best, who's the greatest. Just get in community with other people. One time I had someone come to me and say, uh, here at the church, say, listen, I want to be in a life group that's, that's really awesome, but, but I need to be pointed in the direction of a life group with all the serious Christians. I, I, I want to be in a life group with the really mature, serious, go down deep together with people. Don't put me in a life group with like new believers or folks that are trying to figure it out or just weirdos. Like, I want to be in a serious life group, the strong life group. So I sent them in the most immature life group I could find. Humility won't be fostered in your life if you think of yourself as a big deal. If you're boasting about how great you are, you have missed it completely. Again, consider here, consider whom God saves. Not only will considering whom God saves foster humility, there's something else for us to consider, and that's this, how God saves. We need to consider how God saves. All spiritual accomplishment, all spiritual pride, all this sort of effort to, to earn ourselves or to elevate ourselves, when we consider how God saves, that levels us as well. Just lower, there's no pride should come up. I want to be really clear here with the language that Paul uses in this section because it displays where the initiative and the activity for our salvation comes from. Paul uses very, very clear and specific language. I just, I'm going to point out three phrases that he uses here in just this paragraph. First of all, in verse 26, he says, consider your calling. Calling is that first phrase. That is God's calling of you to himself. His invitation, that word in the New Testament is used as an invitation to a new life or a new status. It's exclusively used in the New Testament with God as the one taking the initiative. So whenever you see this, the Greek word underneath this word here, calling, it's God initiating, God taking the activity, God inviting, God calling you into his kingdom. You don't invite yourself. You're a rebel. You're a sinner. You're, you're hostile to God. But God invites you through his word, through the, the message of the gospel, through life of Jesus Christ. He says, come home. Be reconciled to me. God calls people into his family. He invites people into his kingdom. God starts first and foremost to open our eyes, to draw us to himself by his grace. He reaches down his hand first. Scripture says this, 1 John 4, 19. We love, that's what we desire, that's what we want to be, because he first loved us. To call, there's a very important word. Second phrase or term here that I think is important for us to see is the term that's used in verses 27 and 28. And Paul emphasizes it three times. He, he says it just to get it clear in our minds. God chose. So again, the initiative, the activity starts with God. God chose the foolish. God chose the weak. God chose what is low. Why? So that nobody could boast. God takes the initiative and he saves by his own divine prerogative and decree. He chose to save. 
Now think, realize this. God was under no obligation to any of us to rescue us from our sin. We rebelled. We disobeyed. We deserved death. It would be right and good of God to send us all to hell for eternity. It's what we deserve. And yet, God chose the weak. God chose the low. God chose the foolish. He chose whom the world would overlook and reject. He wasn't coerced. He wasn't required to. He chose. His wisdom is greater and different than the way the world would look. God saves his people by calling them, calling the ones he has chosen, his elect, to himself through the preaching of the gospel. And this takes us to the third important statement in verse 30. Check it out with me. It's in the, the phrase right there. And because of him, plainly in the Greek, from him. And here's where all the result lies in. God, because of him, from his initiative, from his desire, from his declaration. All of our salvation is because of him. Because of God or from God, you are in Christ. That's a way of talking about our salvation, being in Christ. We're positioned in him. When the father looks at us, he sees his son. We are in him. He is in us. And so because of God, we are in him. We are in Christ. From him. You are saved. From him, we saw Christ because God opened our eyes to see the beauty of his son and the power of his son and the wisdom of his son. That's what Paul says here. Who became wisdom from God. In our sin, we were walking our own way. We were blind. We didn't think much of God or Christ at all. We didn't want anything to do with him. We'd rather go our own way. And God called us. He opened our eyes. He gifted us himself and made us alive. And we saw Christ and we saw he's wisdom. He's life. He's good. He is the only way, the truth, and the life. And we, we responded by faith. And, and blessings flowed on us. Because of God, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God. And then these, these next three words, they're just this cascade, this waterfall of how God has just lavished us with his kindness. It emphasizes the gift of salvation. Being in Christ isn't something you earn or achieve or are enlightened enough to figure it out. It's a gift. From him, you are in Christ. From him. And what these benefits are beautiful. Christ became to us wisdom, and he became to us, first of all, our righteousness. Because of God, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness. This speaks about our legal standing. It's the court scene. When God sees us in Christ, he sees his son's perfect act of obedience, his perfect righteousness, and that's what's credited to us. Our sin removed, taken away. He sees us not guilty, but in fact, pure, holy, upright. Christ is our righteousness. Not our own earning it, not our own cleaning ourselves up, not our own good activity, but Christ our righteousness, not our own. Christ, our sanctification. This is the second term here. This speaks of a ceremonial standing. This moves from the courtroom scene to the temple scene. The temple was a place of pure worship. The priests came in. They had to be undefiled, pure. And so in speaking of our sanctification, he's speaking of us being cleansed and purified. We were defiled. We deserved to stand outside the gates, to be rejected under the curse. And yet Christ, 
Our sanctification has cleansed us, made us pure. When the Father sees us, he sees Christ, his Son, who is pure holy. The scriptures in Psalm 24 says, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who doesn't lift his soul up to idols, who doesn't deceive. Friends, that's not me. I don't have clean hands. I don't have a pure heart. I deceive. I lift my soul up to idols. But Christ, he is the righteousness of God. He is the purity of God. He is the holiness of God. And so because God sees Christ, as he looks upon us, he sees us as pure and holy. We have access to stand in his presence as a kingdom of priests. We are ceremonially pure and clean. So we have the courtroom and the temple. And then one more scene, Christ, our redemption. He takes us into the living room. The word redemption here is taken out of the the marketplace, namely the slavery marketplace. It says, as we were redeemed, we were bought out of slavery, out of the slavery to sin and filth and mire and evil. God bought us back out of the slavery and brought us into his home, adopted us and said, you are my child. You are my son, my daughter, no longer estranged, no longer alienated, but we're reconciled to each other. Your home, redeemed. In every way, Christ is our salvation. So the point here is this. God saves you by choosing you and calling you to himself and making you alive so that you can see Christ. And then you believe and he showers you with all these massive blessings that utterly change your position with God and with this world forever and ever. And he does it all from him with this purpose. Verse 31 so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. All we have to do, like, all we can say is like, thank you, Lord. This is from you. Have you seen the goodness and kindness of God that he's had on me? I can't boast about myself because I did nothing except rebel against him, except live out cosmic treason against him, and he rescued me. He saved me. So all I can boast in is him. One of the things that we got to do as a family while we were on our sabbatical was go to Zion uh, National Park in southwest Utah. We hiked this section of a slot canyon, huge hundreds of feet tall canyon walls and this narrow river that ran through. We hiked up through the river and it was amazing. But before we got on the hike, as we were being shuttle bussed up to the, the start of the Narrows, we were warned. The rangers warned us. There were signs everywhere that said, be aware of flash flooding. If, if, the, if the thunder rolls, if you hear lightning, and if you hear rushing water, if you hear a, a turbulent noise, know, like, there's a flash flood coming, and get on high ground, get out of the narrows, get up as much as you can. You may have heard this last week, that there was a, a young woman that was hiking in the narrows, and she disregarded those warnings completely, and she ended up dying uh, because she was caught in one of those flash floods. So we're there, we're hearing the warnings, and we're, we've got to perceive that. So just, if I could just, like, have you put yourself there for just a moment? You're hiking up there, you're in the canyon, and, and a flash flood comes. And you kind of thought you were a big deal. You kind of thought, oh, those rules, those warnings, they don't apply to me. I know what I'm doing. And, and all of a sudden, you're swept up into that flash flood. You're being rushed down river. And I don't, it's fast, it's fierce. I don't care if you're an Olympic swimmer. You're not coming out of that one alive. You're not that good of a swimmer. And so you're floundering and flailing about, and it... It doesn't look good. It's hopeless for you. 
But there as you're being cascaded down the river, someone sees you, a ranger sees you, you're just flailing around in the water, and they get on the radios, and they begin to mobilize the park crew and staff, and, and they're able to pull you out and rescue you. Helicopter comes and lifts down, and they get you up out of the water, and they save your life. Now, let me ask you, what's your story going to be then? Yeah, you know, I didn't eat, warnings, shmornings, I, I know what I'm doing, and yeah, the flash flood caught me, but you know, I'm pretty smart. I knew right where to be so that a ranger would see me. I knew that if I waved my hands in just a specific way, they'd go, oh, that person, they need help. They're in trouble. And, and you know, so they, I knew I was smart enough to have them see me. And, and, and as the rescue teams came in, I knew how to lay in the rushing river as it was going down. I knew how to lay just right so that they could pull me up out of the river efficiently. And yeah, I'm really pretty good at saving myself. Anybody think here that's a good story to tell? You're an arrogant fool if you think that. Why do we talk that way about our salvation? <laughs> Why do we talk that way about God? You know, I was pretty religious today. Showed up at church. I prayed the right prayer, sang the right songs. Yeah, God was pretty cool. To, you know, it was, it was cool of me to be so smart to get up in God's presence. And he was kind of nice to me. Yeah, I'm a big deal. Friends, no. No. When you are rescued from death, you boast in the one who saved you, not in yourself. So it is with God. All you've contributed to this whole thing is rebellion and enmity and hate. And yet, he loves you. And yet, he sent his son to die in your place. And yet, he raised Christ on the third day to give you life. All this because of him. You are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that you might say, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's all our stories, right? Every one of us, every person here is trusted in Christ been because God has rescued us. God has redeemed us. And when we look at each other, how can we not be leveled? The same great grace that rescued you, rescued the person you're most annoyed with, if they're in Christ and if you're in Christ. The same great grace that saved you from your sin, saved your political enemy, who's a Christian, from their sin as well. Why do you think you're so great? You're not. Consider how God saves. He rescues us. We're all beginners in grace. We're all level at the cross. And if we consider that rightly, then pride will be crushed. But we know the song Amazing Grace that saved a pretty decent, morally good, awesome person like me. Let's sing it right. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now God found me. Here's just the idea. If we get these things into our hearts, all we'll be able to do is boast in God's wisdom and power. All we'll be able to do is point people to him and say, he's the savior. He's the one. Run to him. Flee to him. Get to him. He's calling and inviting you. I mean, the truth is that pride will always divide us. And wherever there is that division, it's, it's 
because we're arrogant. It's the original sin that keeps the world in ruin today. But God has a new and brighter future for us in Christ. A glorious calling, life, unity, harmony, because of what God has done for us in Christ. So if you want to boast, boast only in God. He's your only hope. And let's be unified together in him as our Savior and our Lord. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.